Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In recent years, a flood of net zero emissions targets have been set by companies, municipalities, and countries around the world. In fact, over two-thirds of the global economy is now covered by net zero targets that aim to zero out greenhouse gas emissions and slow and ideally halt the process of climate change. Yet while the quantity of net zero targets has multiplied, the quality of many of these targets is questionable. Many targets are voluntary and too frequently not subject to reliable oversight. At the same time, political realities can present steep hurdles to governments that might seek to establish robust, enforceable net zero targets at the national level. What is needed are strong governance structures to ensure that net zero targets deliver the carbon neutrality that they promise. On today's podcast, we're going to dive into the challenge of ensuring the credibility of net zero targets and of building the governance frameworks to do so. We'll look at what exactly constitutes a robust net zero target, and we'll discuss some of the hurdles, political and otherwise, to robust governance. Today's guest is Thomas Hale, Associate Professor in Global Public Policy at the University of Oxford. Tom's work focuses on the management of transnational problems with a focus on environmental, economic, and health issues. He is a visiting scholar here at the Climate Center. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andy. It is great to have you here. So net zero has replaced reducing emissions in the dialogue around climate policy. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a background. When did that shift happen and why? Well, it's happened actually enormously quickly, where this idea of net zero has gone from a scientific consensus in the academic literature to actually an organizing principle and actually a norm for how we think about the climate challenge in just really a span of a decade. So around 2010 or so, um, scientists were writing about carbon budgets and really putting their finger on the the main problem with stopping climate change being controlling the cumulative amount of of, of carbon and other things in the atmosphere. Um, and so that gives you the idea we need to get not just get things low, we need to get them to a point where we're not putting anything more in than we're taking out. And that means net zero. So it's a very simple idea, actually, this idea of balance. Like when you breathe in and breathe out, you're getting um, essentially what we need to do for the whole planet, making sure this, there's a ratio here that's not going to be increasing the amount of temperature um, in, in the planet. Um, but that was reflected in yeah, the scientific papers around 2010 or so, that period, and then came through in the IPCC report in 2013, and then into the Paris Agreement in 2015, in this famous article 4.1, which said the world should achieve a balance between sources and sinks, that is the and huh, of the of the atmosphere in uh, the second half of the 21st century. So it's gone from kind of a science idea to actually an organizing principle in this landmark international treaty on climate change in just a few short years. You said in an earlier conversation that we had that we are at the end of the beginning of net zero. What does that mean? So I find it really remarkable how after this sort of science clarified this idea, how it was picked up into the um, international architecture in the Paris Agreement, how it then became really popular through a second Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC report in 2018, which was 
the special report they did on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which said it's not just the second half of the 21st century we need to get to net zero by, it's actually 2050 if we want to have at least uh, a decent chance, a 50-50 chance of limiting temperature change to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what the Paris Agreement says we'd like to get to. So that was really mobilizing because it showed, I think, very clearly what needed to be done. We need to get to net zero and the time frame for doing so. And it was picked up by people like Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future movement and a whole bunch of different things. And then more surprisingly, perhaps, by companies, by countries, by cities, by regions, this idea that countries had negotiated this global goal could then be translated into the targets that these other actors were taking. So how did it get to the end of the beginning? Well, it got accepted by not just a few sort of leaders, but as of last year, really the whole world, more or less, is some kind of net zero target. So that's a huge step forward, but it now raises new challenges. Well, Greta Thunberg has raised issues with the definition of net zero or what it really means. So I want to ask you that. How do you define net zero? So the IPCC, again, is very clear about what net zero means for the planet overall. It means that we have a balance between sources and sinks of anthropogenic sources, anthropogenic sinks of, of um, greenhouse gases. But the challenge is when you downscale that global goal to a country, to a city, to a business, um, what does it really mean for them to do? And how do you operationalize that? And that's a much harder question. So, for example, the United Nations has a campaign called the Race to Zero Campaign, which produces a lexicon of different terms. Net zero is one of those terms. And in their definition, an entity achieves net zero when it reduces emissions to re residual levels and then permanently neutralizes those remaining emissions through some kind of removal system. So that's a bit more precise, but again, raises lots of more questions. What is the residual level? How do you neutralize and these kind of things? So that's the, the messier process we're in now. Are we talking also about carbon dioxide or all greenhouse gases? So all greenhouse gases will need to be um, you know, effectively in balance before we achieve uh, an end to further temperature increases. But obviously it's the cumulative amount of carbon that's the biggest piece of that. And that's the one that lasts for a long time in the atmosphere. So um, net zero carbon is you know, the biggest and most important stepping stone to net zero overall. Um, but then it gets kind of complicated because these different gases have different lifespans and how you add them all up and what you, know, you prioritize can get a little tricky. The good news though is that um, the first steps are pretty pretty simple and clear. There's no ambiguity about them. Reduce carbon, reduce some of the short-lived climate forces, and you're on the right track. So you've done, and some colleagues have done, some pretty impressive and deep research on the issue of net zero and governance. And um, in one of the reports you looked at, I believe 4,000 entities, including governments, corporations, I guess municipalities or local governance uh, units, to kind of judge who's got targets. And you found that, uh, well, about, as I said in the intro, about two thirds of the global economy is covered. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you looked at. So this is a project I really, I really love. We have something called this net zero tracker, which is trying to track all the countries in the world, about 200, all the cities over 500,000 people, of which there's about 1,200, all of the states, regions, provinces, kind of entities in the top 25 emitters, of which is about 800, and then all of the 2,000 biggest publicly listed companies in the world, the Forbes 2000. So those are about 4,000 entities altogether. And we look at them um, in real time and see which ones have targets and what do those targets include. Do they include clarity on what the pathway to net zero will be? Do they have different kinds of governance provisions or not? So we're trying to put, a, put forward a map of who's doing what and also how robust that is. 
So you found that only 5% of net zero targets are what you'd call robust. That's right. So if you look at the total number of uh, countries committed to some kind of net zero, like maybe they've got a really good law on it, or maybe they've just put out a press release on it. If you add up all those different countries, um, just countries alone, you get to something like 90% of global GDP covered by some kind of net zero commitment, which is great. I mean, this is why I say we're at the beginning or end of the beginning, right? Because we've kind of got to the near universal coverage. But if you look at how many of those countries, this again, are in law, then it's only about 20%, right? So again, not trivial. This is a good chunk of the world that's now got a legally binding net zero target. Um, but obviously, we'd like it to get to 100%. But the thing, you know, the thing I'm always flabbergasted by is how quickly it's changing. So when we did that study, or it's an ongoing tracker, but when we looked at it last year, it was a 6% of the world that had a in terms of global emissions had a um, a legally binding net zero target so it's grown you know by more than 3 times in 12 months that's the kind of rate of change we're going to need to see continue and indeed expand to to get to where we need to get to well you also mentioned that there's a continuum and you've just kind of started to introduce that concept here a continuum of targets net mm -hmm. zero targets that go from the industry level voluntary and you characterize those as very agile targets that can be put into place very quickly to regulatory standards, regulatory standards that actually have to go through the governmental process, can take time. Tell us a little bit more about that continuum and the advantages and disadvantages at both ends. Yeah, so you know, there's not going to be one single structure to which this happens. It'd be surprising if the entire world economy could somehow be put into a single framework. Um, and so it's a complex system and we need to use the tools of kind of complex systems to understand what's going on. So I, I like to think about it in four different um, buckets of governance technologies, if you will, that are, are at play here. One is, as you say, the voluntary commitments and standards. And we see a huge amount of action here, especially in the private sector, Companies you never would have thought might set a net zero target, like say ExxonMobil, are setting net zero targets. And then, of course, the key question is what are the standards behind those targets? And so you see a lot of um, private initiatives, things like the Science Based Targets Initiative, which is a consortium of NGOs that tries to put forward a definition of what a, a good pathway to net zero could look like, who are working with the private sector to get them to sign up to these things. And about a thousand big companies have signed up to that Science Based Targets Initiative. So um, there's a lot of, of substance there. But there's also plenty of targets out there which have not signed up to any kind of voluntary standards. Um, my favorite example is the Canadian Tar Sands Net Zero Alliance, which is, um, you know, I don't want to disparage them too much, but it's definitely not been put forward for scrutiny by climate scientists to see if this is indeed a, a kind of where they need to be. That's the voluntary space. But we're also seeing, I think, really interestingly, is a second big shift to these what I call orchestration campaigns. So think about an orchestra, you have a conductor and you have many musicians. Think about the voluntary standards as the musicians kind of doing their thing. Maybe it's a, a jazz ensemble, so they're kind of riffing and improvising. What the orchestrator does is step in and say, actually, here's where we're going to go as a team. And we're going to try to mobilize you and send us all to a common set of, of standards. And that's what the United Nations is trying to do with this Race to Zero campaign I mentioned to try to articulate what are some common benchmarks, some common criteria that all net zero standards should try to live up to. And so they've been working with things like science-based targets and cities race to zero and the under two coalition of states and regions and all these kind of networks of subnational non-state actors to put that forward and develop some common criteria. Interestingly, the world's governments, the countries that form part of the United Nations have not 
sub- submitted themselves to a similar kind of process of mm. defining standards. So the subnational non-state actors, the cities, regions, businesses, investors, are at least some of them beginning to kind of define this. Countries are saying, we'll do it ourselves. Thank you very much. So it's an interesting contrast there. Well, it's interesting you bring up the UN initiative, the Race to Zero campaign, because uh, you also have identified seven attributes of net zero. And can you explain what this means? Are these frameworks for effective governance? Tell us a little bit more about what those attributes are. So if you want to think about this big, big process of net zero, you know, obviously it's a scientific question, it's an engineering question, but it's also you know, a social question, an economic question, a political question. And so you need to think about this as a holistic concept. And with some colleagues in Oxford, what we tried to do is think about what would a good net zero look like? What would be the criteria, the desiderata, like the characteristics that it would have? Um, and then we had these seven characteristics, as you mentioned, into three buckets. First was the urgency of getting to uh, zero, so reducing. So making quick action, trying to make sure that you're covering all of your emissions, not just say your scope one or scope two, meaning your direct emissions, but also things in your value chain. Um, that's the first bucket. Wait, so so, rob- mm. so robust target implies then that they're going to act quickly. Indeed. Okay. So w- one of the reasons why you hear criticism of net zero as a concept is because some people think, ah, you're saying what you're going to do in 30 years when you're no longer going to be in power or maybe you'll even be dead. I'm so, going to be net zero by 2050. Exactly. And there's a great article in a satirical Australian newspaper which said, you know, 70-year-old man commits to quit drinking um, in, in by 2050. And you know, he was obviously enjoying his um, his Australian Shiraz in the meantime. <laughs> nice so, parallel there. Huh? Exactly. And so, you know, as St. Augustine said, Lord, make me chase, but just not yet. So this is exactly kind of the a really important problem. If we only think about what happens in 2050, obviously that's not going to be a way to get there. Again, the basic science is it's the cumulative amount of emissions, the atmosphere that matters. So if we need to crush, flatten the curve, you know, crush the curve, really, a term we've heard all you know too often in the last two years, and then get it down to zero and you know potentially even go below that if we need to think about removals. So first step is urgent emission reductions. Um, but then, of course, you need to think about the net part, you know, the, 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 for the residual emissions that remain, how do you have a high integrity, actual robust system for ensuring neutralization? And that's a really, I would say, less mature space in the climate field where it's a lot of investment, of course, in restoring nature, in maintaining nature to provide that natural sink. The world would need to have a global state of net zero. But we can't plant enough trees to kind of maintain our current emissions and still expect to somehow get to where we want to get to. So it has to come with emissions reductions. And we see a huge amount of growth in the technological removal space where people are really trying to develop new ways of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, And that's going to be an important part of the solution, even if we're super successful, as we must be, in crushing the emissions curve in the next few decades. Um, It's just going to be needed for those residual emissions. And... Um, of course, a great thing to develop for for future you know um, uncertainties we may have in this pathway. You also get into issues such as offsets and mm. carbon dioxide reduction and the role of those or the limitations of those, right? Yeah. So we've had a system where, in the past, countries and 
mostly companies, have used offsets in a pretty unregulated, unstandardized way. So anyone can kind of put up their hand and say, I'm selling offsets, and those offsets could be really good, or they could be not very good. And if you're buying offsets as a company for something like $4 a ton, which some of them you can get for, you got to kind of think, is it really that easy to <laughs> deal with these problems or is something you know a little fishy going on there? And, and plenty of, of reason to think it's a bit fishy. So some of the fishier ones, for example, are um, selling uh, forestry offsets, planting trees or restoring land in some way. Um, and then in a few years, maybe that's not permanent because the land burns down from a forest fire or because the land gets sold because it was never really owned in a kind of long-term legal structure that can preserve it through time. Um, and so there's some really kind of difficult um, things on permanence. And so the solution here, again, is governance, right? So if you can have a strong standard where you can actually verify what's going on and have some kind of credibility and guarantee of that, then this kind of offsetting market could work well. But there's no global regulator who set that up. There's no kind of global police force that said, you can do this, you can't do this. And so that's where I think we really need to step in and see um, a strong regulation of that. This UN orchestrator I mentioned has kind of clarified what should happen there, but it requires a big kind of infrastructure to be built up to actually get a well-regulated kind of offsetting market developed, and then we're not there yet. Is this something that um, you think governments would be best equipped to handle through regulation, or is this something, because there's, there's quite a lot of complexity here, could voluntary targets also encompass this? Can industries encompass this in their targets themselves, do you think? So, so they do now already do so, and as, as I said, imperfectly. Um, and so, I think the burden of proof is really on the entities, especially companies that are wishing to use offsets, that they can do it in a robust way. Because there's been so much, um, you know, greenwashing and and lack of um, transparency in this space. It's really a huge market failure. Um, you know, and some governments, uh, like the Australian government, have set up their own kind of offsetting scheme, but it's not very good. It's, it's you know kind of widely criticized by scientists as not really doing what it's doing. So there's no guarantee that government regulation is going to be the the solution here. Um, there's a nice initiative called the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative, um, Integrity Initiative, uh, which is trying to look at this question and define you know what what does good look like and to build standards around it. So my hope is that we can see some clarity on that question that then gets picked up by international standards, by regulatory decisions, and really embedded into the requirements of this pathway to net zero. But you know, offsetting gets a lot of attention, and to my mind, probably more than is merited based on the percentage of the solution we're going to solve that way. Um, so it can be a helpful thing, but the primary focus of our efforts should be on what is a pathway in the short term to cut emissions really in half this decade you know, in half is a big number. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be done through reductions more than offsets. Well, I want to push a little bit further on that issue of offsets and particularly nature-based offsets. About a year ago, we had Natalie Seddon, who's also with Oxford here talking about nature-based solutions. And she brought up the issue of the difference between nature-based and biological solutions, which mm -hmm. you also point out in these seven attributes. And this is such a big issue because we hear about the million, trillion, billion, however many tree planting <laughs> campaigns and all these things. And I want to ask you about that. You know, there is, again, a lot of emphasis on the offsetting. What are the dangers of offsetting, particularly when we're looking at nature? Nature is such a critical part of the solution because we know, you know, again, going back to the basic IPCC definition, the world as a whole has to be in a state of net zero. And that means that we need all of the natural sinks, the ocean, the forest, the soils that are the, whose job throughout the last 
several millennia has been to do that. So we need to make sure those are protected and restored. Um, where I think we we get into trouble is when we downscale to the individual company, city, country level and say, um, okay, you're going to have to also get to net zero, but you can avoid a little bit of your reductions if you buy a little bit of someone else's. And unless we have a kind of system that actually adds it up and makes sure it's consistent with a global pathway to, re to real net zero at a global scale, then it's you know we're not going to actually achieve that. So again, it's about standardizing and putting regulations in place to make sure that the left hand is in the right hand are coordinated and not just doing this. And then our net zero tracker, we see some real problems here because in the, of those 2000 companies that I mentioned, the majority say they're going to use offsetting Mm -hmm. But the majority of those also don't say what they're going to do with offsetting. So at a minimum, we need to understand what the plan is. Um, and you know, probably the truth of the matter is most companies don't know exactly what the plan is. Um, and until we figure that out together, it's not clear that all of this will add up to a net zero world. Well, Natalie was very specific on the issue of the biological solutions, which mm -hmm. can be monoculture plantations. You plant a bunch of trees or whatever plants grow quickly to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But that can have detrimental impacts in terms of ecosystem biodiversity what have you right absolutely and that's why we need this holistic vision because if we were to hypothetically imagine um you know in increasing biological solutions to be uh, as as Natalie says these these monetary plantations we could do a huge amount of damage to everything else we care about livelihoods biodiversity everything else we need to survive on this on this rock going around the sun um, and not be able to achieve our climate goals even so it's it'd be really a perverse outcome um and and you know I think this is again where we need to kind of take a little step back and think about what are we really trying to achieve here is the purpose of uh, selling offsets to help companies achieve their goals, or is what we're trying to achieve to build a world of net zero, which is going to have robust nature as one big pillar of that. And therefore, what are the tools we should use, maybe including, but also not limited to offsetting, you know, fundraising tools to, to get us there. One last uh, attribute that I really want to focus on here is that of economic opportunity, dislocation, and interestingly, in, in one of the reports, you bring up Germany's Ruhr Valley, which I believe is where brown coal or maybe hard coal is, was mm -hmm. produced and, and burned as one of the few examples of successful transition. Tell us a little bit more about transition being an essential attribute of net zero targets. It's exactly this idea of a holistic transition. We we know that the rate limiting step to getting to net zero is not going to be, can we imagine the engineering solutions that we need? We probably think it's not even going to be, can we fund, you know, find a marketplace for those engineering solutions? Renewable energy is taking off hugely right in the market. This is, this is really encouraging. But people need to be brought along on this journey. And there's no world where net zero is politically sustainable unless people can imagine that as a world they actually want to live in, where they have livelihoods, where their communities are not um, decaying. And so you know, this goes way beyond the science that you read in the IPCC reports, but it is obviously essential for affecting what's essentially the largest and fastest economic transformation humanity has ever attempted ever in our history. And so it'd be surprising if that didn't involve some th real thinking about how to, how to mobilize support across society, especially in those parts of society that might be um, have some losses from, from this transition. So I think there are some good examples. The Ruhr Valley is one here in the state of Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh is a really good example of this, where the city has, you know, I think, uh, done 
a very good job of, of thinking about what the future industries are in healthcare and science and technology and innovation and, and making that pivot. I'm not going to say it's easy, and there's certainly plenty of difficulties in Pittsburgh and anywhere else, but it's exactly the kind of transformation we need to see at scale. Another aspect of this that comes to mind is, is also the transfer of capabilities, right, to the countries that may not have the capabilities to, to – so Germany – United States, Pittsburgh, you know, we're developed world, but you have a lot of places that are actually obviously suffering under the the first uh, impacts of climate change and the transfer of technology, of finance is also part of this. And it gets very complex because again, these attributes of robust net zero targets are asking a lot of anyone who's going to be involved with this. And I think the question, and you kind of anticipated this earlier, uh, you had said that Regulation is not necessarily the panacea. It doesn't guarantee that these will be robust targets. But if it's not at the federal level and it's not governed, how do you really make sure that this is all for real? Great question. And I think, to my mind, the best example of this is one of the, looking at deforestation. One of the biggest drivers of climate change is illegal deforestation. So there we've got the laws right. It's not a question of getting regulations to say this is legal. It's defined as illegal deforestation. So um, how do we how do we combat that is through finding better, of course, capacity building systems for um, people, you know, authorities in rural parts of Indonesia or the Amazon to be able to enforce the law, but also probably more importantly, building up all economic alternatives for, for those um, populations so that there's a pathway to uh, a better world that doesn't involve quite as much deforestation. And so this is a very um, you know, important reminder. This is a system we need to change. And we have uh, you know, human systems as well as natural systems. And the human systems are a lot more complicated. And so I'm a political scientist, right? So I, I like to think about this part of the challenge as um, as the, the one we're really grappling with now. How do you not just build the right regulations where you can, but also ensure that they're not going to be captured by special interest. And if you even get them on the books, how do you make sure that they're going to be delivered and implemented? And that's you know a bigger question than just thinking about what is the balance between sources and sinks in the atmosphere going to be. It's a you know, fundamental question of politics is how we as a society make collective decisions and how who benefits and who doesn't and how we mobilize support. So that's going to be central. And just to make it very concrete, at COP26 last year, we had this very optimistic and ambitious announcement that a number of Western governments were going to provide South Africa with $8.5 billion in a package to help their power industry transition off coal, which is a huge problem. Have we seen any de details on that emerging yet? We haven't. And so there's a real question, can we deliver on that very specific narrow one? If we can't, I think it's a huge step backwards and one that really draws into question, are we going to get this right? But it's not dead yet. We still have a lot of time to get that right. So I would hope to see at COP27, next, and, um, the next one coming up in a few months, that this has been done. And if we can look at more of those kind of proof points of limitation, I think we'll have some confidence in the broader transition. Let's take a step uh, forward here and look at the EU. Okay, The EU has one of the most aggressive, comprehensive net zero targets, net zero by the middle of the century, and more immediately, a reduction in emissions by 55% by the end of this decade, which is now not very far away, <laughs> eight years or so away. Will the EU have adequate verification for its net zero targets? 
I think it will have adequate verification. I mean, the monitoring and verification part is really advanced hugely in the last years through satellite technology, through remote sensing, other ways of adding things up. You know, for for many years, um, countries reported their emissions every year, or sometimes two years, even less, to the UN, kind of like a big printed out set of papers. Like that's not a system that's going to be good for monitoring. But now it's much more distributed. And there's a huge amount of kind of private sector interest in, in providing real-time monitoring of these things. And that's really changed the game because it means we can now hold people accountable much better than we did before. And in Europe, we've already seen this beginning to unfold where um, different groups have been suing governments or companies to say, you're not doing enough, you need to do more. Um, and some courts finding that to agree, you know, finding that to be in agreement. Um, and so we've seen that in the Netherlands, we've seen it in Germany, um, their efforts really every country to do that more. And I think that's going to be an increasing part of it as we see these targets um, put forward as the monitoring verification becomes more easy, as we maybe slip back a bit from where we should be, then the power of the courts will be mobilized more and more. And transparency is going to be such a big issue, right? Totally. The public is going to have to have confidence that these targets are real and verified. Indeed. So the logic of this is, right, you set a high target, you implement it, you show you've done it, and that gives you confidence and other people confidence to go further and set the next target, right? This whole Paris ratchet mechanism we've set up is premised on this idea that you do a bit, then you implement it, you do a bit more, and you ratchet up and up and up until we get to hopefully net zero. But to make that work, you need to show results, right? If people are setting a target and not meeting it, and then setting a higher target and not meeting it, and setting a higher target and meeting it, we're going to lose confidence. And um, that's the sort of integrity piece of the equation is going to be key. That's what really what the net zero tracker is hoping to try to do, is provide a bit of transparency and you know, comparability across different targets to you know, look at some of that sunshine and see what it disinfects. Well, the SEC here on this side of the Atlantic has proposed disclosure requirements for publicly traded companies around climate risk. I suppose that's part of the transparency and the, and the you know, ensuring robustness all it ties in, right? Exactly. And so this is a great example, I think, of how we're seeing the governance of net zero shift more and more from voluntary to regulatory along a sort of conveyor belt, if you will, from the voluntary to the regulatory, where Companies have been disclosing voluntarily their carbon emissions and climate-related risks for decades now through groups like CDP. After the 2008 financial crisis, that got picked up by the G20 um, into a commission by the Financial Stability Board, which became the Task Force on Disclosure of Climate-Related Risk, TCFD. Um, that then became the law of the land in a few places. So, for example, in the UK, it started on April 1st of, of, of this month. Um, in the EU, it's kicking into force um, in a pilot already and from 2024 universally. In Japan, it's going forward. And here in the US, it's been proposed by the SEC. So we're seeing the large markets around the world now go from kind of, this is a good idea, to this is a fundamental thing we need to do to understand where we are in the transition and just report it like you do your taxes or your financial information. So I think that's a very promising step. Disclosure isn't the be-all and end-all, but it's a good first step. Just a curiosity here. Every time I do a Google search, I see at the bottom of the Google page, it says, carbon neutral since 2007. What does that mean? <laughs> Great question. So, you know, a lot of the tech companies have been very aggressive in buying renewable energy, and they're huge you know, energy users. But they're also quite rich companies, so they're able to to uh, to do that well. Um, so, there's been a lot of different terms we see bandied about: carbon neutral, net zero, climate positive. I was reading a carton of milk the other day that said it was carbon positive milk, which I think is probably not what they were going for, but <laughs> exactly that's what it said. Right. Um, so, I think there's not really much clarity, and people use these terms in different ways. Um, 
But you know, the race to zero campaign again has this lexicon which says define these terms or try to kind of bring some convergence there. To me, the key point is many we don't have a really good standardized system for how companies especially report on what they're doing. So I haven't looked in the details of Google's um, uh, thing, but um, you know, they sh to be claiming carbon neutrality, I would expect them to be. Uh, reducing their emissions to a point where they're quite low, and then um, buying offsets of a high quality to compensate for those. Now, if those offsets are not um, of the kind that are permanently neutralizing the residual emissions, then I wouldn't say they're net zero, but they might be sort of carbon neutral in the sense that you know, the, the two sides add up. Um, but unless the kind of overall atmospheric impact of what they're doing on the removal side is matching the residual emissions, that's the point where we can declare, declare net zero. So... Um, I hope Google wish them uh, good luck and, and Godspeed on their on accelerating that path because 2007 is um, a good point. But we need to get to the next. The yeah, next one. no, no intense intention <laughs> on picking on Google here at all. <laughs> you know, but it does bring up the point of of heavy industrial companies, right? And you've got the whole issue of upstream and downstream emissions, the scope of emissions. That's going to be a big challenge for everybody. Absolutely. So, for Google, there's a pretty clear path forward, and how to get there if you're an airline or a steelmaker, then you know there's going to be some big changes that are needed to to imagine even what a net zero pathway could be. So that's that's um, going to mean that we're going to be on different time frames, um, and and some will find it easier. Um, but the the kind of power I think of the net zero idea is that no one is going to be able to be off this journey. Right, we're all going to need to get to the net, uh, get to zero, and then um, anything remaining will need to be permanently neutralized. Um, and we're seeing huge breakthroughs in steel, I think, for example, as, a, as one of the promising sectors. It, aviation, I think, is going a bit slower. Um, there's kind of a reluctance to consider some of the kind of more radical solutions, like, for example, not taking short-haul flights. Maybe we want to save the carbon we have available for aviation for the thing, places we need it. Maybe build some more trains. You know, these are like the harder choices that are not going to be things that most companies will get to voluntarily because it's a pretty radical shift. That's where the regulation comes in. France, for example, um, in their COVID stimulus package, made a condition for Air France. You know, all the airlines were getting were getting support from national governments. But they said, "We're going to support you because we need, we, you know, we want there to be Air France in the future. But we're going to have to, we're going to ask you to stop flying on on routes where." trains are equally good for you know short distance stuff in within France which kind of makes a lot of sense if you have as good a rail network as France does and um, you know not a huge amount of geography to cover so yeah that's a good example where a little bit of regulation can help companies get to the point where we ultimately need them to get to great before we finish up anything you wanted to go into that I forgot to ask about just to say I think it's a really exciting time to think about these questions because we have got to this kind of critical mass where we have 90 percent of the world economy, signed up. So let's make it make it stick. And I worry that if we don't dig into these harder questions of getting the regulation right, getting the standards right, and doing the operationalization right, we're going to risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater because you have a lot of pushback from civil society, from activists, from people who are skeptical who read things like you know, these carbon neutral claims that they aren't, don't really add up and say, this whole thing is kind of BS. Um, and we need a better way to go about it by calling out the BS, by you know exposing that, but also pushing toward the rigorous version of it. Because without that, we're really quite lost. So um, unless we get the governance right, I think we're really not going to be able to build on this momentum we've seen. Instead, we might fall back a bit. So yeah, the time is critical. Are you optimistic that we'll get that governance in time? I always like to look at what we can do and and think about the barriers as things to be overcome. But let's be realistic. You know, it's going to be it's going to be a fight. 
and there's a lot of reasons why you know it's it's going to be difficult. One of the opportunities I see this year is something the UN, UN Secretary General has put together a high-level panel on, on net zero standards. That's going to come out with a big statement around this COP27 moment in, this, in November. So let's all push for that as a way to really look at what's good, call out what's bad, and create a plan for building it up going forward. Tom, thanks very much for talking. Thanks for having me. Today's guest has been Thomas Hale, Associate Professor in Global Public Policy at the University of Oxford and a visiting scholar here at the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy. Visit the Kleinman Center's website for more podcasts as well as energy policy research and blog posts from experts in the field. To keep up with the latest from the Center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to the podcast and have a great day. Thank you.